0: Welcome to episode 299 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm
1: Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. World
0: hey,
1: brother. Hey, brother. How you doing? I'm good. Good. It's... As you can tell, dear audience, by the awkwardness, we're together again. We've remarked a couple times that it's actually a little harder to record face to face than the way we normally do, uh, just because it's different. But we are, as always this time of year, coming to you from beautiful Ocean Grove, New Jersey, which is this uh, quaint little seaside town, uh, which has this interesting Christian history that we may or may not get into in a little bit here. But uh, it's always a blessing to be here. And we're together as a family, which is always great. So Jesse, how are you enjoying the sun? That's great. It's How great. How are you enjoying the sun? It's, it's hot. <laughs> it's sunny. I'm burned, but I, I, I love it. But it feels so good. It does. It burns so good.
0: Yeah. Speaking of Sav, what is on tap for this episode?
1: 299. So we are going to be talking today, this is going to be a little bit of a different uh, flavor of an episode because we're going to try to record two episodes in one shot. So we're going to record, uh, we're going to talk about what it means for Christ to be one person. Uh, which is a continuation of our conversation last week, so we'll probably cover some of the same ground, uh, and then that naturally transitions into talking about going from the person of Christ to His work and His mediatorial offices. So we'll we'll transition and start to talk a little bit about uh, the you know the office of Christ as a prophet right. and what it, what it is that Christ does specifically as a prophet, which I think uh, ironically is actually one of those offices that we don't talk about all that much. So I'm excited to get into it. I think it's it's an area of uh, Reformed theology and Christology that is underappreciated in our circles. So it'll be nice to kind of touch base on that and to talk about that. Sounds great. So where do we begin? So as we've been going through this Christology section, we've talked about these sort of four compass points. So the first compass point being that Christ is truly and fully God The second compass point is that in the incarnation, Christ takes on a human nature and uh, becomes truly and fully human. Uh, And then the third compass point being that in the incarnation, those two natures remain distinct from each other, even as they're inseparable from each other. And so we're kind of rounding the corner here on this fourth compass point where we'll talk about even though there are two natures, and ordinarily two natures would mean two persons, we're actually going to still retain the fact that in the incarnation, those two natures are united in a single person rather than two persons that are united to each other or some sort of amalgamation like that. So it's it's important theology, uh, as you might expect expect it covers and crosses boundaries with a lot of the stuff we talked about last week and a lot of the same kinds of errors that this protects against. Uh, the the um, Calcetonian de- definition protects against will come up again this week as well. Sounds great. So the, the sort of the catechism question uh, that we've been sort of circling around to, to intro this stuff uh, is in the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism. They have very similar. So I'm going to read question 36 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. And the question is, who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? The answer is the only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man. And so was and continues to be God and man, in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. So th- this question intros this topic well, but the reason I picked the larger catechism instead of the shorter catechism, usually we read from the shorter just because it's a little more concise, but this, the, the larger catechism focuses on the fact that the incarnation is, is in place because Christ needed to be the mediator. So it's not just, there's not just some metaphysical necessity. um, It's not, it's not a sort of a crass substitution. It's actually that Christ needs to be the mediator, which is a a really key part. And again, something I think that, that people miss and that'll play in a lot more later. But this question sort of orients us to the fact that he was one substance and equal with the father and then became man. So we have those first two compass points and then he retains two entire distinct natures and he is one person forever. So it has all four points of that compass embedded in this question oriented around that Christ is the mediator. And sort of taking that compass analogy, you know, a compass is designed to keep you oriented to the right thing It orients you to north. And if you know where north is, then you can orient yourself to east, west, south, and all of the intervening, uh, you know, midpoints therein. This four point compass orients us towards the proper way to understand Christ as mediator. Because if any one of those points is out of whack, then Christ can't be the mediator that the Bible describes him to be. And that, I think that's really, really key. So why do you think that that is underrated or undervalued? Well, I, I think that in general, um, you know, most of our audience and, and myself uh, are coming out of a more general evangelical milieu. And so we focus so much on the death on the cross, which is, of course, important and of the utmost importance. But because we focus on that one element of Christ's work uh, to at times the exclusion of other elements of Christ's work, we also miss out on things like Christ being fully God. A lot of times in evangelicalism, there's almost like a hat tip or a head nod to the fact that Christ is fully God. But because the death on the cross is the key point of Christ's work, we overemphasize at times as humanity. And the, the pointing us towards the mediatorship of Christ and how it has to function according to the biblical logic It forces us to observe these compass points. And I think in general, people, Christology is one of those like black boxes of theology where everybody has a Christology. um, But usually, unless you really are intentional about it, it's not a very good Christology. And of course, if you get your Christology wrong to a certain degree and in a certain way, you may actually be bringing yourself outside of the Christian church, which would put you in jeopardy of not being a saved Christian because you actually have faith in some other Jesus rather than the Jesus who saves us from our sins. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think, you know, talking about the one person reality of Christ, um, you know, there's some common errors that we see um, in modern evangelicalism that, that even have sort of crept into reform theology. We talked about it a little bit last week um, with R.C. Sproul's kind of famous statements of, um, you know, Christ Christ didn't. Uh, God didn't die on the cross. It was just the human nature of Christ, or something along those lines. He's he's also said um, that it was the human nature which con- you know completed the atonement. That it was it was the human nature, not the divine nature. And as I said last week, when you were to push him, there were times where he had question and answer sections, and he got sort of pushed to clarify those things. He always clarified into an orthodox direction, and usually got all the way to a fully robust orthodox statement. Of well, it's it's not the you know it's it's the whole person that dies, but it's the whole person that dies according to the human nature, and so that's a common way that that happens. And because of R.C. Sproul's influence in the Reformed world, that's become kind of the default go-to. Uh, people almost always, if this comes up, they they turn back to that. The, the real common uh, sort of way this comes out is around Easter time when people start asking about the hymn. Um, you know, it says that God died. Um, I don't remember which hymn it is off the top of my head, but um, different hymns that talk about God dying or that God should die. Um, and they always point to this one clip or this one article that R.C. Sproul had. And the, the fact of the matter is that that perspective that was being shared in those various contexts is actually a deeply Nestorian perspective, because when you have a nature that is now com- communicating action is doing actions is the process, the verbal processor, um, and is the subject of verbs, the person who's enacted, the, the thing that's enacting a verb. Um, and then of course, now you've you've got um, the the human nature is a distinct subject that can do and will something or can can enact something different than the divine nature can do and act. Um, you now have two subjects, and really what you have is two persons. You have two hypostatic realities. That are now indistinct, you know, individual actors that are somehow united to each other, which is precisely the error that Nestorius had and his followers had. So we have to be really careful how we parse some of this out and how we answer some of these kind of classic conundrums that Christology puts in front of us. Otherwise, we do have this tendency to slow, sort of slide into either a Nestorianism or sometimes we slide into a, a you know a Eutychianism where there's one person but there's also only one nature. Um, we have to maintain those kind of four boundary markers or compass points, or we do. Slide slide off the rails into these pretty dangerous areas, I think.
0: So presumably you're moving in a direction to explain that. So how does one then find themselves in the midst of that compass without going over those boundaries?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the first thing is it takes a lot of a lot of work. Um, I think that's the other thing is a lot of times evangelicals and I don't want to just bash on evangelicals. Um, it, you know, there there are flavors of this in every tradition. Um, I think the Reformed tradition, properly speaking, tends to be more studious, a little bit more serious about theology, so it's not as much of, an, of a danger. But evangelicalism or sort of New Calvinism, which is just evangelical with like a Reformed overlay, um, they tend to focus so much on the Bible itself, which is, of course, a good commendable thing, uh, and then also on sort of works of ministry, missions, personal evangelism, personal piety, that the sort of studying and studiousness of the faith that is, I think, is required of Christians to, to be serious and to study not just the Bible, of course the Bible, but not just the Bible, but also what the church has said about the Bible for the last 2,000 years. We're not the first generation of Christians. We're not to reinvent this stuff. That gets missed. And so some of this theology is just totally new and foreign to people. They've never even thought about these things. They've usually had some sort of vague idea that Christ is fully God Christ is fully man. And it's sort of intuitive that Christ is just one person, but they haven't done the work to understand the sort of complex theology that underlies it. It's not terribly difficult to understand if you, if you have a good teacher and if you do the work, it's not like it's some insurmountable mountain, but it does take a little bit of work. So I think that's the first thing is do the work. Um, And the other thing is allow the church to inform you, allow the church to speak to you. Um, I think we all would look at someone who says that they're not going to listen to any Christian, including their pastor and that they're the supreme authority and they're the final say. And nobody has any, nobody has any say in in what their theology is or influence. I think we would all look at them a little bit sideways and be like, that's not really a Christian perspective. You know, Christians are people that operate under authority in some sense. And whether that's, you know, your pastor's authority or, Um, Something along those lines that that takes form in another way of allowing the pastoral testimony of the church writ large. So not just your pastor, but the, the entire contemporary visible church, but then also the entire historical visible church. All of those things fall under the pastoral teaching ministry of the church, not in sort of like a Roman Catholic magisterium sense, but in this ministerial sense that we trust that God has moved in the church, that he has communicated uh, truth through the church, not in an infallible way, of course, but that he, in fact, has spoken and moved in the church and has moved godly men to understand the scripture in godly ways. And the historic understanding of the Christological reality in the Chalcedonian definition, that is the summary teaching of the Christian church on the subject that has stood the test of time and, for the most part, has been unchallenged um, by the church or by anyone in the church for 1,500 years. So I think those those kind of things in tandem of do the work yourself, study the historic testimony, but then also have the humility to let the historic testimony, I don't want to say shape because the scripture should be shaping our theology, but to help us understand and to inform us and to, to influence us. Um, and of course, you know, the Bible, when you read it and you, take it seriously and you go slow and you you read it and read it and read it and you marinate in it i actually think that the chalcedonian theology comes out anyways um if you just look at a passage like matthew 24 which is the passage about jesus not knowing the day or hour or um acts two or or acts three excuse me where it says that where peter says that the author of life was killed um, I think it's Acts 20 with the Ephesian elders where Paul says that, you know, the church was purchased by the blood of God. If you look at those statements on the face of them, they are illogical. They, they don't make logical sense. So we have to have some sort of mechanism to kind of balance that equation or reconcile that equation. And the only calci- the only logic that can do that properly without underemphasizing you know, the unity of nature or the unity of the person or underemphasizing the or overemphasizing the distinction between natures um, or, or you know, saying Christ isn't fully God, Christ isn't fully man. The only logic that can do that is actually what the church came to in the Chalcedonian definition. And if you read the scriptures carefully, you're actually going to probably come to something very similar to that anyways. Um, it's really only when you start to try to buck the system and you react against what the church has said, which I think is what's going on for whatever reason with a lot of uh, sort of the problems in Reformed Baptist Circles or Reformed adjacent Baptist Circles, is there's this weird impulse to actually buck. We got a plane coming. in. This is going to be great. Wow. That was like some Iron Man level stuff right there. Uh, there, there's this impulse, um, I think, in reaction to some people utilizing sources they're not happy with, particularly Thomas Aquinas. There's now this impulse in certain Reformed Baptists to push against the history of the church, push, push against the historical testimony of the church, which is now causing them to, to fall off of that boundary marker. So now they're falling into errors on either side in various ways, both in the area of the Trinity and the area of Christology, which of course is very interrelated.
0: So what is that biblical logic that we can use that in some ways supersedes that natural logic that you were just speaking of?
1: Yeah, so it comes from Philippians 2. It's, it's right there on the surface of the text. You you have to do a little tiny bit of digging. But Philippians 2 says that um, you know, Christ or the Son, It's uh, speaking of Christ specifically, which usually refers to his incarnate state, but Christ um, was truly eternally in the form of God such that he did not count it robbery, um, or inappropriate, or whatever phrase you want to use, to to be called God, or to to grasp on or hold on to that, he didn't find it robbery to be to be God, uh, meaning that that was truly his natural possession. And then, in order to become uh, have the ability to die, and to be obedient unto death, he took on the form of a of a servant. And so, when it talks about the form of God, the form of the servant. The church historically and i think it's just a just a plain reading of the text has understood these forms to represent natures what later would be called natures or what i suppose contemporaneously to the scriptures was being called natures in platonic philosophy and neoplatonic philosophy that these forms are another way to talk about these capacities that the son has. He has all of the the capacities and attributes of God in the form of God. And he takes on all of the capacities and the attributes of, of man in the form of a servant. And, and you see, even in the logic of that text, he, he becomes obedient unto death and the requisite of that is taking on the form of a servant so i actually don't think that the humiliation the, the humbleness that's being called out in this text is the incarnation itself although i understand why that interpretation is common i don't think it's i don't think it's like grossly wrong but the the humiliation being pointed to is supposed to be something we can actually imitate well we can't we can't take on a new nature but what we can do is we can be obedient even unto death on a cross So in order to be obedient, and this is exactly what Hebrews says, that he had to learn, uh, he had to learn obedience by suffering, he had to become perfect by suffering, he takes on the form of a servant in order to, to take on the capacity to live our life, to earn merit according to the covenant of works, which he can then bestow to us, to be humble and obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Well, that logic is that with that second nature, that form of a servant, he gains these new um, these new attributes and these new capacities. And in some senses, you can think of limitations as capacities of the human nature. So he gains the capacity to be bound in time and space according to his human nature. So we say according to the form of a servant, he died on a cross. But according to the form of God, he did not count it equality to grasp divinity or to to grasp equality with God. He did not comp that robbery. So even in that, that one, you know, passage, what is it, 10, 15 verses that logic is right on display. And so then what we do is we reflect on the fact that the, the title being used in that passage is a title for the incarnate person, the incarnate Christ, but we're still applying divine realities to that single person. So when we speak of Christ, we're talking about the incarnate man, Christ, but we're now also saying things about him according to his divinity, namely that he had the form of God. So that logic now allows us to untie some of these knots in these other places in scripture, where now instead of being all tied up because it says that you know God purchased the church with his blood, we realize that it's appropriate to speak about the single person using a title that's appropriate to either nature, even if we're referring to an action that is appropriate to the other. So in that case, we're using a title that's only appropriate to Christ according to divinity, but we're talking about an action, dying on a cross, having blood. We're talking about an action that is only appropriate to humanity. And so the Westminster Confession, um, the London Baptist Confession retains basically the same language in chapter eight, talks about the fact that it's appropriate to refer to something that the person is doing according to one or the other nature and use a title that is proper to the other nature. And so when we get to Matthew 24 and we, uh, we are faced with this kind of weird statement where Christ says that he does not know the day and the hour and only the Father knows the day and the hour. Um, instead of saying, well, it's the human nature of Christ that knows that, right? Because now we've made the human nature a, a willing actor. We've made him a, a distinct subject from the divine nature. Instead, we speak of the son, whether we use a diviner or a human title is not really important. But we speak of the son, according to his human nature, only had human knowledge. And it had not been revealed to him by human knowledge uh, or according to human knowledge when the day or the hour was. And that actually gives us some insight now because that also, you know, teaches us more about like why we shouldn't set dates. Well, how did Christ learn theology? He learned it by studying the scriptures, just like we have to. Granted, he had the Holy Spirit above measure. He was not affected by sin. And so he probably, um, he, he came to cleaner conclusions that were not tainted by sin. And, and he came to correct, um, correct conclusions. Um, but nevertheless, he still had to come to those conclusions in a human manner by studying the scriptures and learning about himself from those scriptures. So if even Christ went to the scriptures and did not come to the conclusion of when the day or the hour was, according to his human nature, then that also teaches us we should have no business even trying to come to that conclusion. So when, when we when we properly observe the natures of Christ and how they are united in one person and how they're operative in one person, and how that one person operates according to one or the other nature – it also helps to sort of show us what true humanity looks like. Because we we no longer are thinking about, you know, the, the example we we've used is Christ walking on the water. We're no longer thinking that he's Clark Kent who's hovering above the water because he's actually Superman, right? We're not saying, well, he's walking on the water because he's God and God can do that. We're actually saying, well, no, he's he's a human prophet engaged in a miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that shows us that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. It shows us that we also are empowered by the Holy Spirit. It helps us to make sense of the fact that Peter walked on the water right after that. Well, because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when he doubted, that that empowering of the Holy Spirit was removed from him, from him for a time. And so now we can reflect on that. I, I'm about to sound super charismatic, but we can reflect on that and realize that our own doubt sometimes hinders the Holy Spirit's activity in our life. Not because the Holy Spirit is hindered in some sort of absolute sense, but because he has chosen not to operate in us when we are engaged in doubt. And that's exactly what James says. When we ask with no doubting, God is faithful to answer our prayers for wisdom. Well, but if you ask with doubting, then we shouldn't expect anything from God. So a lot of these, a lot of these, dynamics that we observe in the Incarnation, if we understand how the Incarnation functions the way the Bible has described it, not only does it help us to untie some of these sort of tricky theological knots, but it also helps us to inform what our faith should look like. Because at the end of the day, Christ is not just a true full human. He is the prototypical archetypal true full human. He's what Adam should have been in the garden. He's what all of us should have been had Adam succeeded. And so we can see what our true, our true natural capacities, untainted by sin, untainted by the limitation that the corruption of sin has brought, what our true human capacity should be. We can see that a, a little bit more clearly in Christ, which I think is just a, a nice side effect and shows how interrelated Christology is. I mean, in this case with, with eschatology with pneumatology we've got a little bit of uh, bibliology in there of what the scripture does and doesn't teach and what it has the capacity to teach us we've got um ecclesiology uh, we got eschatology i think we've hit just about all of the different main loci of theology just by reflecting on this one element of christology so it's it's really important to get right it's really important to do the work and it's it's like i said it's it's difficult theology but it's also not that incredibly complicated, and I think that's another stumbling block that a lot of um, evangelicals and maybe even some Reformed find is that in, they're intimidated by it because it seems so arcane and so difficult and so convoluted and complicated and, and technical. And it can be, and you can certainly take this theology to a much more technical place than we are right now, but on its surface level, it's not all that complicated there's there's a divine person who is truly and fully divine from eternity because that's what it means to be divine and he adds to himself a human nature and everything that comes with that and his divine nature wasn't changed his human nature remains human and and they're united together in one person and now that one person is everything that it means to be divine and remains everything that it was is to be divine unchanging and he also now is fully human so I, i think it's 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 a beautiful theology and I think once you start to get your head around it a little bit, it really does unlock the scriptures and unlock the Christian faith, Christian piety. Everything really does kind of open up if you get this. I think the same way about the doctrine of the Trinity. If you get those two two foundational elements right, then your entire kind of like um, theological pyramid sort of falls into place. I don't know if you've seen, um, there's this video online uh, there's a couple different iterations of, of variations of it. But the one that I've seen is it's a bunch of bricks that are like laid on top of a wall that someone is building and they're stacked on an angle. I'm doing doing hand signs here like imagine, but they're stacked on an angle all along the top of the sign of the sign and the brick layer. You look at you are like, that's kind of weird. But the brick layer taps the last one in a line and all of them fall. And as they fall, they all click into place. And it's a lot like that. Once you get this last brick in place, this kind of cornerstone brick, and you tap it into place, all of a sudden everything else almost by necessity falls into place in line. Um, because we've also talked about this kind of theological spider sense or theological BS detector, theological bad stuff detector, right, for our PG listeners. Um, this is one of those major components in that. That if, you, if you're hearing someone teach something and you can't make it fit with what you know to be true about the person of Jesus Christ or the, the doctrine of the Trinity, it just can't fit in with that, then you know something is off. You know that there's a problem and that it needs to be interrogated more. Um, this was actually the way that I first came to sort of look at EFS and be like, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right. Something's not right about this and I don't really know what. Was that I started to reflect on the doctrine of the Trinity and all of a sudden I'm thinking, wait a second, if... If there's only one nature, and that means there's only one will, then how does submission and subordination, even? how could that even function? Even if we acknowledge that the persons are all of equal natures, doesn't that still mean there's multiple natures, there's multiple wills? So getting this right will protect you from error, it'll help you to understand other theology more clearly, it'll improve your piety, it'll help you read the scriptures more accurately, um, it really is kind of a multi-faceted, it's like an all-purpose soul, it's like the Swiss Army Knife of Theology.
0: So maybe you'd like to move then from what you've talked about in terms of the character of Christ as one person to the function, the outworkings of that functionally.
1: Yeah, so this is why the Westminster um, Larger Catechism is so great on this, is that it goes immediate, immediately from talking about um, who the mediator is and then how the mediator became man, which we didn't, we didn't read that, but we've read that in other things. It then goes into talking about why the mediator had to be both God and man. And then it goes straight into the actual role and office of the mediator. And so it, it goes from, from the metaphysics of the incarnation to the work of Christ as the mediator. And it starts off with, with sort of three, uh, three questions here, four questions here. Question 42 says, why was our mediator called Christ? And the answer is, our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king in the estate, both of his humiliation and exaltation. And so this, this question frames that for us is that the, the title Christ is not just, um, sort of like a generalized top term of an anointing, right? We, I think everybody knows the word Christ or Mashiach or Messiah in Hebrew, We all recognize that that term means anointed, but in the Old Testament, you were never anointed just randomly or generally. You were always anointed to an office or for a purpose. And so when Christ is anointed as Christ, uh, which happens uh, in one sense in eternity past, he's appointed by the father to, to come and do the work of the ministry of the mediation you know, mediatorial office of Christ, which if you're not careful, that can sound very much like EFS, right? Christ is given a task in eternity past and he submits to that task. We have to remember that the mediatorship, the, the language of, of appointing a task, covenanting a kingdom, um, commanding the son to, to go or to be sent, all of that in the Old Testament is in light of or in reference to the mediatorial office of Christ. So it's not in, in reference to the trinity ad intra or the trinity as it is in itself, the persons as they are in themselves, is always oriented towards the economic realities of the trinity. So even though some of these things, quote unquote, happened before time or happened in eternity past in some sort of temporal frame or logical frame, we're not saying that these are, are necessary features of the uh, Trinity itself, which is the error that E.F.S. makes. But when, when the son is appointed the task of, of redeeming the people in the covenant of redemption, in the pactum salutis, he, he is appointed by the father or accepts the, the task from the father to redeem the people of God, right? He makes the covenant of redemption. He accepts the terms. He accepts the stipulations. He accepts the sort of implied curses and the implied blessings of the covenant of redemption that is his anointing and so even even the intra-trinitarian operations of the son of the spirit proceeding from the father through the son and that's the procession of the spirit from the father and the son it's a it's a complicated theology but even that is an element of the anointing is that the son receives the holy spirit in eternity past from the father ad intra that's a that's a procession that's an ad intra reality that the son receives the spirit from the father even that plays into why it is that the son has to be the one who becomes the mediator because he's the one who is the appointed one, the anointed one. Um, so that flows naturally then into understanding these different offices and there's these three offices. And now this is, this is a traditional threefold form. Um, prophet, priest, and king. There are other ways to sort of subdivide the work of Christ. Um, I don't think any of them are super useful, so I'm not going to go into them. But the three, this isn't like, there's not like a passage in the Bible that says, and then Jesus became the prophet, priest, and king, right? This is a this is a biblical theology. This is a synthesized theology that we recognize from various places in the scripture. But I think, you know, it's it's important to recognize that this is not just something he does on earth. This is something he does in his humiliation, which starts with the incarnation, proceeds through with the entire life of Christ, culminates with the death and the burial of Christ, and then is over at the resurrection. Right? The resurrection is the first act of, or the first phase of the exaltation of Christ. Um, so that's the period of humiliation. It's easy for us, I think, most times to see how Christ is operating in these various roles. We're going to get into the specifics of these roles, but easier for us to see how Christ operates in these roles in the incarnation, partially because the majority of the data we have in the Bible refers to Christ's period of humiliation. But it's harder sometimes for us to see how Christ operates in these roles in the exaltation. And although this question doesn't necessarily approach it, I also think we have to recognize that Christ was operating in these roles as mediator prior to the incarnation as well. So when when we see, just for example, we can talk more about it, but when we see the word of the Lord come to a prophet, well that's the son operating in his office of prophet in the Old Testament. Um, when we see um you know the um the section in Judges where um Gideon's parents put the not Gideon Samson's parents put the offering on the altar and the you know the person whose name is wonderful touches it with the staff and the fire goes up that's christ in a a pre-incarnate christophany operating as a priest he's accepting the sacrifice of the people and communicating it to yahweh um, you know, the, king, the kingship metaphors, I think, are easier to understand. Christ, God is ruling his people. He's guiding his people. He's protecting his people. Um, we see that in like the angel of death, which isn't a great translation, but the angel of death in the Exodus. He comes and he slays the firstborn of Egypt and he protects the people of Israel when he sees the blood on the doorpost. All of those things are still operating. And so we have to understand this threefold office kind of in three ways. The, the, the way that Christ operated in sort of in mystery prior to the incarnation, in humiliation during the incarnation or or during the the incarnate ministry of Christ on earth, and then in the exaltation after uh, the resurrection or from the resurrection forward, and culminating in the the return of Christ in the last day.
0: And that may be a good point then to at least transition to some of those different roles.